Our Bible reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 9, and I'll be reading from verse 1 to 17. Luke chapter 9, verse 1. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, Take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, Leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about all that was going on, and he was perplexed because they were saying that John had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. He replied, You give them something to eat. They answered, We have only five loaves of bread and two fish. Unless we go and buy food for all this crowd, about 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so. And everyone sat down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. I was encouraging just then looking around at Um, everyone with your heads down reading the passage or your emails but I took it reading the passage on your devices or on paper because that makes my job a lot easier if you've already read it and have it open in front of you let's pray together Heavenly Father we just ask that as we look at your word now we pray that you would speak to our hearts Lord please show us again who Jesus is we pray in his name Amen I'm sure you've done this sort of stupid thing. You've gone looking for your glasses only only to have someone point out, well, they're on your nose. Or you've been hunting around in the fridge for the butter and you shut the door and think we've got no butter and sure enough, it was there. It was just, you know. Or or you're looking for the car key and it's in the ignition. We do these sort of stupid things because we're normal. We're humans. We don't see things that are right in front of our face. We miss them. We look straight past them. And you can laugh about it later. Well, mostly, you can laugh about most of these things later. But sometimes we miss the signs and therefore we make catastrophic decisions for which there there just isn't any remedy, there's no coming back from. Sometimes that happens. We don't read the situation, we don't see what we're meant to see, 
We make a bad decision. You can't undo it. Failing to recognize who Jesus is, that's one of those situations. I got a little bit stuck looking at the passage this week. I was stuck on the question, you know, why has Luke included this section in the gospel? It's partly because of the way that we've broken up Luke's gospel. And you kind of, you stop at verse 17 and the punchline's yet to come in verses 18 20. So what are we doing looking at this little bit for? And I've already asked, right, can he preach on the next bit? So I'm stuck with this. And so what do we make of this? What's the application for us? Why? I mean, sure, Luke's telling us these things so that we understand they happened. Sure, he's giving us a bit of history. But what are we to make of it? Where does it hit home for us? And I think it's helpful as you look at this little section, verses 1 to 17, I think it's helpful to read this passage as a continuation from last week. Remember last week where you had the disciples in the boat in the storm and Jesus calms the storm and they've just seen Jesus show that he has the power of God and it scares them. And Jesus says that they should be trusting him. He wants them to have more faith. I think we need to have that picture in the back of our mind as we continue to work our way through Luke 9 verses 1 to 17. What Luke is showing us, I reckon, is... These 12 bumbling apostles, um, bumbling on without fully understanding who Jesus is, it's like they keep missing the signs. They keep not being able to put one and one together. They keep failing to appreciate that what, what exactly it means for Jesus to be the Messiah, for him to be God. And they just keep missing the significance of Jesus' kingdom. And if we read with the apostles in mind, then I think we start to see the implications for us because the way Luke puts this on paper for us, he doesn't hide anything. He shows us these 12 men in all their kind of humanity and their stupidity and we can relate to that and it draws us in and we can see how hard it is for them to come to terms with the truth and there's the encouragement for us to arrive at where these apostles do end up, acknowledging that Jesus is Lord over everything and giving their lives in service of him. But as Luke records it, and we see how bumbling they are, it draws us in and helps us go along on the journey with them. So one of the things that makes Luke's gospel, I think, more believable is the way he shows the apostles to us, that they are just normal human beings. He doesn't smooth things over. In fact, he shows them as people that we can identify with. And you've got in the back of your mind last week's passage with them in the boat, scared when they see how powerful Jesus is, rather than trusting in him. And here's Jesus urging them to keep trusting in him and have faith in him. So Luke's recording the apostles as they are without smoothing things over. And it makes it more believable as we see the humanity gets us drawn in and we can start to see the implications for us. We need to end up where they end up, seeing Jesus as Lord and Saviour. And when we read this part with the apostles in mind, what I think we see is the struggle to accept Jesus as the Son of Man. Jesus as the Messiah. So let's have a look at verses 1 to 17. Um, in this passage, as you look across it, what you'll see is you'll see the apostles given this huge responsibility to kind of duplicate or multiply Jesus' ministry, um, to represent Jesus. They go out on this, this missionary journey, but at the end of the day, it's like they haven't really learned anything from it themselves. They don't seem to have fully grasped that Jesus wants them to ask him for help, that Jesus can provide. And so I think that's what we see. So let's do a bit of a flyover and have some little mini um, detours and conclusions along the way. Firstly, what Jesus does is he commissions these 12 men 
to proclaim his kingdom in verses 1 to 6. If you look at verse 1, Jesus gives them power and he gives them authority to do exactly what he himself has been doing, to drive out demons, to heal sick, to proclaim the kingdom of God. And you see it summarized again in verse 6. They went from village to village proclaiming the good news and healing people. Then in verse 10, you see Luke refers to these 12 as apostles. They're sent ones. They're ambassadors. They represent Jesus in everything that they do. Back in chapter 6, verse 13, Luke tells us about Jesus calling his disciples to himself and then singling out, naming the 12, making them his apostles. And here you have an example of how they are his ambassadors. There's a tiny bit of an aside here, but people can tend to conflate apostles with disciples and not see the difference. These apostles are ones that Jesus has singled out, that Jesus has asked to represent him in a way that others can't. And as you read on through Luke, you see Luke keeping this distinction fairly clear. So when you come to Acts, which is the sequel to Luke, when you come to Acts chapter 1, they, they, the disciples repl- or the apostles replace Judas, Judas with Matthias. And then when it comes to chapters nine, 8 and 9, you read about Saul or Paul. He's like an apostle abnormally born. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. He's sent by Jesus. He has a commission from Jesus on the road to Damascus in that vision. All I'm saying is that Jesus had, a particular, had particular people, these apostles, that were set apart to represent him as distinct from disciples, which we all are disciples. Back to the passage in Luke 9, 1 to 6, Luke sends out his apostles, almost like his clones, to do exactly what he's been doing, to have the authority and the power to do that. And then at the start of chapter 10, which we're not looking at today, but if you guys ahead at chapter 10, you'll see he there sends out 72. That's six times as many, if I'm doing my maths correctly. But the 72, they're not referred to as apostles. We're not told that they had the power and authority that the apostles had. 10 verse 1 says the 72 were sent out in pairs or in twos to go ahead of Jesus to the places where Jesus would follow. That's a bit of a different picture to what we have here There's similarities, but it's also different. Here in chapter 9, there's a lot we're not told about these apostles' missionary program. We're not told, for example, how long it went on for. We're not told exactly where they had to go. We're not told that they went ahead of Jesus. It doesn't sound like that. Did they travel on their own, each of the 12? Or did they travel in a bunch? Or did they go out in pairs or in triplets? We're not told a lot about this missionary trip but the stuff that we are told is there because Luke wants us to know and what he does tell us is firstly he tells us um, what they're to take with them secondly he tells us where they're to stay and then thirdly he tells us how they were to respond to those who didn't want to listen and so in verse 3 he told them take nothing for the journey no staff no bag no bread no money no extra shirt why would Jesus tell them to take nothing with them? It's not that they're teenagers and he doesn't want to put the bar too high. It's not that there's no preparation going into this. He's telling them deliberately, go out with nothing. I mean, maybe it's so that they don't come across as showy you know, salespeople going door to door with all their wares. They certainly couldn't do that. Maybe it's um, to give others the opportunity to look after them, maybe. I think, though... 
I mean, both those things could be true, but I think it's most likely that he sent them out with nothing so that they would learn to trust God. Because the next thing we read about is this feeding of the 5,000 where Jesus has the power of God and provides. I wonder if Luke has put these things together. So whether the lesson for these apostles is God will look after you. So we're told they were not to take anything with them. We're told where they should stay in verse 4. It says, whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. We're not told how long they were to stay. Maybe there was a time, I don't know. Um, But verse 4 sounds like they shouldn't bounce from home to home. If they arrive and someone welcomes them in, stick it out. It does make you wonder. I mean, when you put people in a confined space in lockdown, interesting things happen. So maybe part of this staying put is to be good ambassadors for people to see everything about them. I don't know. I'm just kind of guessing between the lines here. Maybe sticking it out was part of how they would bear a good witness to Jesus. Maybe. What are we told about what they're to do if people don't welcome them? Well, verse 5, if people do not welcome you, leave their town, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Apparently, you know, shaking the dust off your feet, apparently that's like saying good riddance. It's a fairly definite, we're done with you. And just hit pause on that point for a minute because there's a few things to think about. I mean, most obviously, not everyone's going to receive the message of the kingdom of God. That's obvious. Jesus is telling them what to do when they don't. If people don't welcome them, Jesus says he doesn't expect them to hang around. Just keep moving. They don't want you, don't hang around. And that's sobering when you think about it. When you reflect on our own efforts to see people come to understand the kingdom of God, the lengths we go to, is there a point when you just walk away? Shake the dust off your feet. But as you think about that, keep in mind that we're reading this passage with the apostles in mind and keep in mind how slow they were to put one and one together and yet Jesus persisted with them. It does make you think, doesn't it? I mean, we need to take care in seeing direct connections between this special missionary trip of the apostles and our own efforts in Christian ministry, but... Maybe there are things for you to think about. We need to take care of making direct connections because this is before Jesus' death and resurrection, which changes everything. And these are people, 12, which Jesus has singled out specifically. Anyway, we're not told much about this missionary trip here in chapter 9, nor are we told much about whether it was successful or not. All we get is Herod's impressions of this missionary endeavour. Um, The fact that news made it to Herod would imply that, well, these people were noticed. Jesus kind of duplicating himself and having 12 or 13, if you count him, doing the same sort of thing, certainly raised public awareness, you might want to say. Um, look Look at what Luke shares about Herod's response. It gives you a little window into what people were thinking. So verse 7, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on, and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been risen from the dead. Others, that Elijah had appeared. Still others, that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see Jesus. Um, 
there were a range of responses. If you, if you trust Herod's report or his reflection of what he's hearing, there were a range of responses to this proclamation of the kingdom of God by the apostles. But as a reader of Luke's gospel, we know that none of those responses that are listed are accurate. That's not who Jesus is. There's reasons why people might conclude that John's back alive again. There's reasons why people might conclude Jesus is a prophet. But none of those responses declare Jesus to be the Messiah, which, or the Son of God, which as we read through Luke, we know that's who he is. So everything Herod's hearing is not quite right. As a reader of Luke's Gospel, it's like Luke's making it clear to us that, well, there may have been public awareness as a result of this missionary trip, but we don't see a whole lot of people responding positively. If you compare Herod's summary in verse 7 with next week's passage where we've kind of clipped this off, if you look ahead in verses 18 to 20, the disciples, they repeat the same summary, what people say about Jesus, that he's a prophet, that he's John. But then Peter finally declares, Jesus, you are the Messiah. But then Luke goes on to show how Peter doesn't really yet understand what that means. But we're back here at 9 verse 7. The fact that Herod heard heard must mean that there was significant impact like awareness but it doesn't sound like a lot of positive response and it wonder, I wonder as I look at verse 9 I wonder if Herod is actually feeling guilty here about having John killed if there was regret he still wants to meet Jesus and if you keep reading on through Luke's gospel you'll come to chapter 23 at Jesus trial there's Herod again And he gets to ask Jesus all sorts of questions, but Jesus doesn't answer his questions. And we read um, that Herod and his soldiers end up ridiculing and mocking Jesus. Clearly, this missionary program here in chapter 9, yeah, it raises awareness, but Luke doesn't lead us to believe there was a particularly effective response in terms of people repenting, coming back to God, wanting to know more about the kingdom of God. And even Herod doesn't. People don't appear to be putting the signs together as they should be. They should be seeing what Jesus is doing, seeing that he's God, understanding that he's the Messiah. Luke wants us, as we're reading it, to understand that's who Jesus is. But even the apostles themselves who engage in this missionary program, they show that they're not really getting it either because look what happens on their return. That doesn't seem like they can join the dots. So in verse 10, Luke tells us, what happened after the disciples returned, or the apostles returned? They told Jesus everything they had done. They reported, but we don't get a look in at what that report was. And then they withdrew to Bethsaida, moved away from you know, public places. The crowds in verse 11 followed. So Jesus did what he always did, and he spoke to the crowds, proclaimed the kingdom of God to them, and healed those that needed healing. And as it nears sundown, as the sun's about to set, you see the twelve... They're concerned about feeding this crowd of people in this remote place. And rather than looking to Jesus to provide, they tell Jesus to send the crowd away. And Jesus replies in verse 13, will you give them something to eat? And their response is basically, well, we can't. Luke points out they can't. There's 5,000 people here. There's a lot of people. And then Jesus takes matters into his own hands in verse 14 and shows yet another sign of his kingdom. He's a king who provides. So verse 16, taking the five loaves and the two fish, looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. And then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. 
They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 baskets full of broken pieces that were left over. Jesus, again, shows he has the power of God. Um, Luke doesn't really offer much of an explanation to this miracle, though. I mean, if you've been reading through 1 and 2 Kings, which we did last year, if you came across 2 Kings chapter 4, you'll see there Elisha did a similar kind of miracle. So this prophet of the Old Testament, he fed 100 people with 20 loaves. Pretty impressive. And I guess that's the kind of thing which might make people, when they see Jesus do these things, think, ah, he's an Old Testament prophet, he's another prophet. But Jesus fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish, which blows Elisha out of the water. This is huge, this miracle. And Jesus' miracle of providing food, think about where he's doing it. He's doing it in the wilderness. It's kind of got echoes of the way God provided food for the Israelites in the wilderness. It's the kind of thing God does. In other words, Jesus' miracles, as Luke records them, continue to show us that, God has the, that Jesus has the power of God. But what I think Luke wants us to see is how the apostles are still not seeing the signs, still not understanding. It's like Luke's building up to verses 18 and 20, which you get to look at next week, where Peter will finally say, I get it, you're the Messiah. But at this point, they just can't see the signs. I think that we're supposed to notice in Luke's account that Jesus clearly has the power of God. But it's just that the apostles are slow to see it. And even after Jesus has sent them out, without their own you know, possessions, sent them out with nothing so that they'll learn to trust that God provides, even after that, they don't turn to Jesus to ask him to provide. They're not making those connections. It's like they just can't, still can't put their faith or their trust in Jesus. And so as we identify with these ordinary men, we're being challenged to join the dots, to see the signs, to see Jesus for who he really is, our Lord and our Saviour. So we've done the kind of quick fly over the passage and drawn some conclusions along the way, but what else do you want to make of these verses? Um, Luke wants us to accept that Jesus is our Lord and Saviour. And thinking through the details of this passage, yes, that's the direction it points you in. You see the power of God, you see that Jesus can provide, and you see what it should look like to ask Jesus to provide. And the most obvious place to start for us is to ask Jesus for forgiveness and new life through his death and resurrection. There's other things to be thinking about. I wonder if we should be thinking about the way Jesus chooses to use these imperfect people, these apostles. I mean, think about the mission which Jesus sent his apostle on, the apostles on. They, they did their job, but clearly they didn't yet fully understand who Jesus is. And if you think a bit harder, you think, well, in among those 12, there's Judas, who's going to betray Jesus. And yet Jesus still used this bunch of ordinary men. Jesus tends to work like that. He chooses unlikely people and uses them for his purposes. I wouldn't want to make chapter 9 of Luke verses 1 to 6 a model for Christian ministry, but in big picture terms, perhaps there is something to learn from it. The fact that Jesus can use anyone to bring glory to him. I mean, it shows the extent of Jesus' sovereignty, the fact that he is God. And there's something else to keep in mind too as you think through this passage, and that is the way Jesus regards people's rejection of him. 
there will be many who reject the gospel of Jesus. And there is a point where you walk away. But as we think about the passage, let's not lose sight of the fact that the big push here, I think, is for us to identify with the apostles and to see Jesus for who he is, our Lord and our Saviour, and to put our trust in him. I'm going to pray for us, and next week, hopefully, Reich can get into the bit we missed out at the end of the of verse 18. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word. Um, please forgive us for when we are slow to listen and slow to hear and slow to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord over everything, even Lord over the little details in our life. Lord, we're sorry for ignoring you and for rejecting Jesus' rule over us. We thank you for forgiveness and life through Jesus' death in our place. And we ask that you would continue to work in our minds and our hearts. Please help us to submit everything to Jesus and to trust in him. We pray in his name. Amen.